Well, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you were with us last week, then you know we just kicked off this new series. The Apostle Paul is in the middle of his second missionary journey. He's writing back to the Thessalonian church from Corinth. And interestingly, he's writing from a struggling church community back to a thriving one. This book is encouraging to read because it's so positive. We know that some New Testament letters were were written largely to correct behavior in the churches. But this one complements, and as such, it not only tells us what we shouldn't be doing, but it especially tells us what we should do, and that is of great encouragement to us. So we're going to pick up right where we left off last week in verse 5, and we're going to go through verse 10. But to give us a little running start, let's, let's read from the beginning of the chapter. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are amazing words. We we can only imagine the magnificence of truth that you have stored up in so few sentences for us. Lord, we humbly acknowledge that we need your truth. And Lord, in faith, we know that you will speak this morning. Your spirit will open our eyes to the truth that is pertinent for us today. Lord, thank you for the assurance you give us in your word. We ask that you would be exalted today. Help us to lift up your word and help us, Lord, to in faith believe what we read. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we study the second half of this first chapter, we see that there is a very logical flow to it that comes in four parts, four primary lessons. You could call them the nature of the gospel message, the nature of the gospel messenger, the nature of the gospel reception, and the nature of the gospel impact. You'll see the flow here as we study through this. Paul isn't going to just state the existence of these. He's actually going to succinctly and powerfully define each one of them. And as we study them, we need to understand that these are not just four things that happened at some point in Christian history. These need to be happening in us. These points lived out are the elements of exemplary Christianity, true Christianity. If we want to know for sure that we are a Christian, If we want to evaluate our faith progress, then these verses give us four excellent uh, measuring sticks to work with. So let's look at the first. The nature of the gospel message. We see this in verse 5. Paul said, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It's easy to read through these verses and say, yeah, that's good stuff. What's the next verse say? How how does it continue? But when we stop and, and think about what Scripture is saying, 
when we meditate on each word and pray over it, we realize that we are looking at the nature of the gospel message. And we see that this message comes in four parts also. At least there are four listed here. So let's focus on those. The Word, the power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. Now to appreciate and and to really understand the value in verse 5, we have to connect this to the uh, prior verse like it was intended. The sentence, as you can see, it doesn't begin in verse 5. It continues in verse 5. So as we look back, we see that after giving thanks in the first few verses, look look here at how Paul continues in verse 4 and prepares us for verse 5. He says in verse 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Now those words quite significantly altered the direction of my sermon this week, particularly Thursday night when I was reading them, laying in bed, getting ready to go to bed. Never underestimate the power of reading the Bible before you go to bed. My sermon changed course in that moment. Knowing, brethren beloved by God, His choice of you. What is Paul saying here? He is basically saying, we know that God saved you. Think about that statement. He's saying that we know that God saved you. We're talking about the assurance of salvation here. I had this this conversation with one of my children this week. How does Paul know that these Thessalonians were true believers? How does he know they were the redeemed? He gives us four evidences, four proofs of truly being saved. I trust this will be of great guidance and encouragement to all of us this morning. Here are four sub-points to point number one, the nature of the gospel message. First, we have the words. These are the letters on the page. They're the plain facts. It's the message itself. If a person doesn't know what the Bible says about creation, about sin, about forgiveness, about the cross, and Jesus, the Son of God, taking our punishment taking our sins upon Himself, and that that He came back to life. If a person doesn't know the specific words of Scripture, then it is very likely that they are not saved. Because they don't even know the words, the specifics. They don't know what the Gospel is. The Gospel is not a feeling. It's not a nebulous, ethereal idea. It's not someone's mystic vision which was becoming an issue in the churches, the idea of Gnosticism. Some would have a higher knowledge. Some would have a superior spiritual knowledge that others couldn't have. Now, that is not what the gospel is. On the contrary, the gospel message is a truth. It is a spiritual reality that is clearly defined and communicated with words. We cannot underestimate the clarity and the importance of this first element, the very words of the gospel. It's why we study the Bible. It's why we study it carefully. But it doesn't end there. These words have power. I love this second point. What is power? We know that power is a force. It is an energy. It it has the ability to move something from point A to point B. It has the ability to change an object's state of being. That's what the gospel does to people and for people. Paul has to point this out because there are words that have no power. They don't really move you. They don't have the ability to actually change you. But then there are words that are powerful. Words that change your state of thinking. They they change your behavior. They change your entire state of being. They change your whole belief system. And and they change the way you live. We'll get to impact in a second. But the third element of the gospel's nature that we see in this verse is the Holy Spirit. You see, words can be powerful, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have the Holy Spirit in them. I'm sure many of you are like me, and we've been to, to more than one business conference or convention around the country, and, and we've had the privilege of hearing some of the world's best motivational speakers. I'm telling you, a lot of what they have said has impacted my life. It has shaped the way I think. 
the way I approach business, the way I approach values, the way I approach understanding people, etc. But that doesn't mean that what I heard in, from them was Holy Spirit inspired, Holy Spirit infused, Spirit driven, God ordained. This is what fully separates the Bible from all of the self-help and inspiration books and speakers out there. It's what separates the Bible from the basic facts of life. It's what separates the Bible from every other religion. The Holy Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, authoritatively claims to be in the message. Ruth reminded me of what we heard in Sunday school a week or two ago when one of the speakers said that it's not enough to love the words of the Bible. We must also love the person behind the Bible. The person in the Bible. God is in the Scriptures. Jesus is the Word, John 1.1. And that's why we have element four here, full conviction. The short form of conviction is what? Convict. This picture is the idea of a court of law where a judge and a jury weigh all the evidence and then they judge the matter and they determine truth. Likewise, when all is said and done, the message of the Bible is fully determined, fully convicted to be true. To those whose eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit, the Bible is absolutely convincing. It's verifiable. Its veracity is proven to us. We find no reason to doubt because the Scriptures have no holes. This is closely related to the Greek word for sincerity, meaning no wax. Many of you understand the meaning behind that. In Bible times, a piece of pottery might have a small crack or a hole in it, and a dishonest person would take what? They would take wax and they would fill it in, and then they'd paint over it and they'd sell it as good as new. What happens the first time you pour hot water or hot soup in that piece of pottery? It melts and it leaks out and you realize you've been suckered. The gospel message, the Bible, has no wax. It is tested first. It is tried. And all the evidence points to it being truth. That's because of the prior point. The Holy Spirit is in it. And He is truth. We commented on that last week. We're hearing it again and again in the current Sunday school series. Oh, my goodness, how that class sets a pastor up to preach the power of the Word. Jesus Himself said in His prayer to the Father in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Speaking of this full conviction point, here's a truth point for us to consider. If you think you're a Christian, but you're not sure the Bible is really the Word of God, if you're not sure that it's really completely true, if you have doubted it all along, you are lacking one of the key proofs of salvation. Now, I don't say that to, to put you down, of course. I say that because I want us to be honest together. I want to come alongside you and reason with you according to the Scriptures. One might ask, well, well, does that mean that I've never been a Christian all along then? Friend, don't get bogged down in that question. Some questions are futile. That's a futile question. Don't ask yourself, well, well what, have I not been saved then? Just start believing and believe with all your heart. That's faith. That's trusting God in His Word. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. We believe Him. And that's not a blind faith. It's a trusting faith. It's a sincere faith. It's an honest faith. As we look at verse 5 and what we've, we've briefly studied so far, we see that this verse is so insightful into some of the proofs of salvation. It is right and proper and wise for us to ask one ourselves, am I sure I'm saved? And how do I know? Those are biblical questions. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? 
unless indeed you fail the test. Meaning, of course you're not going to see Christ in you if you're not a Christian. We should be able to see whether Christ is in us or not. Paul asks that pointed question, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Can you not see it, he says. He's talking about the power, the person of Jesus Christ, the faith, the very word of the gospel being alive and obvious in us. Friends, if you ever wonder if you're saved, run to this verse. Ask yourself, do I know what the Bible says about salvation? Have I read the words for myself? And, and, and have I done them? Do I believe them? And then, was it life-changing? Was there power in it? Listen closely. Is the Holy Spirit doing something in me that I could not do for myself? That is one of the grand evidences of salvation. That's the miracle of Christ being in us and us being in Him. He is doing something in us and for us and through us that we could not do ourselves. If a person can look at their saved life and look at their pre-saved life and say, I'm no different. The good things that I'm doing now, I could have done before on my own. Then we have every reason to question whether God the Son in the Holy Spirit is in us. Paul asks, can't you see Him in you? Friend, I think if we look closely and we are sincere in our faith, we do believe the words we believe in God and that this is His Word. And our faith is in Him. We have repented of sin. And I think if we take time to look, we will see that God is doing miracles in us. We're not perfect yet in our behavior, but God is changing our desires. He is changing our view of this world. He is changing our values one at a time. Last week I mentioned that I've, you know, working my way through this seminary class, and last week we looked at the book of, of Colossians. One of the great encouragements in that book, which raises the, by, the bar way out of sight for Christian living, by the way, one of the encouragements to me is the tense of so many of Paul's exhortations. He says, keep seeking. Be increasing. That's that, that hopeful, encouraging reminder that don't expect yourself to already be there. We haven't arrived, but God is working in us. He is growing, growing us. He is helping us to put off the old and to put on the new. But friend, if you see no new, if there is no evidence that Christ is doing something in you that you could not do for yourself, then question Test your faith. Not so that you prove you had no faith, but so that you find faith indeed. It is here to be found. And Paul gives us these four wonderful affirmations of our salvation. Galatians 2.20 says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the fruit of the Spirit when we can say, I'm a changed person. God is doing something wonderful in me that I could not do for myself. Paul says, that's how I know you Thessalonians are true believers. Verse 5 continues, and Paul now teaches us just one primary fact about the gospel messenger. He says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul has modeled for us the nature of the gospel messenger. He says, live for others' sake. 
We're looking at selflessness. Just as Christ came to earth and to live and to give his life for us, we are to live for others' sake. You know as well as I do that this is a rare commodity in society. And sadly, even sometimes in the church. The church is to be a group of people, a collective, where everyone is purposefully living for the sake of the other person. That is for their benefit and their well-being. Look out, looking out for the best interest of others and not only our own. So here's a simple application question for us all to ask. What did I do for someone else in my church family this past week? This past month? What did I do for their sake? Of all people, Christians should be the most others-oriented because we are the recipients of the greatest other's sake ever known to man. Christ came for our sake. He died for our sake. He came back to life for our sake. He intercedes now for our sake. He's going to come again for our sake, all to the glory of God the Father. So it's only right that we ask ask ourselves if we can look one another in the eye and humbly say, like Paul, You know what kind of person I prove to be in this place for your sake. Our other's mindedness should be that obvious, that real. Now that's a tall order, but that's what Paul was able to say to the Thessalonian church. And it's what he modeled for anyone who wants to be a messenger of the gospel. That self-sacrificing love needs to be one of the core identity of all believers. Why? Because we're all messengers, whether we realize it or not, whether we grasp it or not. It is our great commission. Next, look at the nature of the gospel reception that Paul gives us here. Verse 6, he says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Why were these Thessalonians exemplary to all believers? Two things mentioned here. First, they copied Paul as he copied Christ. They didn't have their own version of Christianity. They didn't make up their sense of what religion ought to be. They were at the heart of it, copying Christ. Followers of Christ. Imitators of Christ. Here's the second thing Paul mentions. This is stunning. They rejected the prosperity gospel. The idea that Christ will take away all of our problems. He'll give us a bigger house, a newer car, more friends, better health, etc. Now there's nothing necessarily wrong with all of these good things. And yes, the principles of godliness do often bring physical, temporal blessing but those are not the promise or the goal of the gospel. They are not what we have been called to. Matter of fact, we're reminded here that tribulation will accompany the gospel when it is received. We will have to die to self, as Scripture says. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, indeed, yes, matter of fact, surely, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will have to let go of the things of this world so we can pick up our cross and follow Christ. Then we will find the true prosperity gospel, amen? We will find Christ himself, the joy of the Holy Spirit being in us forever. I have to think that's why the songwriter recently wrote, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. That is the joy in the Holy Spirit. But let's bring this back down to street level. If you're like me, our mind has to work very hard to put tribulation and joy in the same sentence. But that is the reality of the gospel. We have to remind ourselves of this. But we also need to read every word in the text. It's not just joy that we're after. It's the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's not the joy of our circumstances. The joy of a certain human relationship. 
the joy of better health, the joy of a comfort, the joy of a relief, etc. It's much greater than that. It's the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's the joy of God Himself. The joy of God in me. And me being in Him. In God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That knowledge, that spiritual reality then becomes the lens through which we view our tribulation. It is the key to joy in turmoil. That's something a person cannot do for themselves. That is something that the world cannot offer you. Joy in Christ. We celebrate our salvation. We don't rejoice in the problems. We we rejoice in the Holy Spirit during our problems. It's what enables us to give thanks. Here's that painful word, right? Always. We confidently look to Christ to fulfill the work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope that only Christ can do and will do in us. And that is reason for being joyful. And that's what Paul and everyone else around saw in the Thessalonian believers, the nature of how they received the gospel, joyful even in tribulation, not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Their new Christian life was exemplary. How much so? Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. Paul's saying, when I go to the, the other churches, I don't have to tell them what happened. They tell me what happened because they've already heard. We touched on this last week. The believers had in so many ways become role models for Christians. They weren't perfect, but they were obviously, that's the word, obviously headed in the right direction. They were a picture of what it means to follow Christ and that they, they, they understood the nature of the message. They understood the messenger and the pride. They had a proper reception of the gospel. But they also understood and experienced the nature of the gospel's impact. This is where Christianity changed and kept changing their life. This is the point that concerned Paul after he left them, when he fled for his life. Would the young believers he left behind still be following Christ. Chapter 3, verse 5, he said, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Point four. Here's where we see the genuine, long-lasting nature of the gospel impact. Verse 9 again. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Turn, serve, wait. You've got to love the clarity of Scripture. If we read the Bible too quickly or too carelessly, we might accuse it of being confusing or just too complicated. And yes, there are portions here and there that are very hard to understand. Why do you think I only spent two minutes on predestination last week? There are portions of Scripture that we do have to wrestle with to even begin to properly interpret and apply. But I am finding that for every riddle in Scripture, there are ten chapters fully loaded with first grade level truth that my brain knows full well what God is talking about. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Esteem others more highly than yourself. Be kind. Forgive others just as Christ forgave you. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And how about these three? Turn from idols, serve God, wait for Jesus. If you're looking for a big picture, easy to understand road map for the Christian life, you're staring at it right there. 
All the churches in Greece were talking about what happened when the Thessalonian believers heard the gospel. And what was it they were talking about? Here are three more things. Number one, they turned from idols. Now, we've got to chew on that for a minute. Let me ask, what makes an idol an idol? Would you finish the sentence for me out loud? An idol is something you worship. It's something you pray to. It's something you love. It's something you serve. It's something you trust. It's something you exalt. It's something you honor. The Thessalonians turned from the worldly things they worshipped, lifted up, trusted, served, followed, took pride in, looked to for help, etc. That was one component of their true exemplary Christianity. It goes without saying, America is full of idols. Even the church wrestles with idols. You and I are in a daily, daily battle to turn from idols. Things we believe will provide for us, give us happiness, meet our emotional needs, etc. There's a battle for daily worship that you and I had better be aware of because it's happening whether we realize it or not. Satan is competing every day for our affections, for our trust, for our energy, for our emotion. And he is using anything and everything and anyone that he can to replace Christ as Lord on the throne of our hearts and minds. The obvious calling for Christians is to never stop turning from idols. And of course, I say never stop because we can go back at any time. It doesn't matter if it's 10 in the morning or 2 at night. It doesn't matter if we're at home or at work or at play. If you've been saved for two weeks or 20 years, we can go back to idols at any time. Idols surround us. They are lying to us to win our trust and affection and devotion. And it's okay to them if we don't give them all of our trust and devotion. They'll even take a little. Let's take a moment to consider the lies of idols. This is one of the key questions in your salt starter in the bulletin there. I encourage you to use these salt starters, these, these sermon discussion notes, even if you don't make it to the salt group this week. The question on the notes is this. What three lies do we believe about the idols in our lives, in my life? We want to make this personal, not just academic. There are many lies, but here are three fundamental ones that I'll toss out to get our gears going. Lie number one, it will make me happy. Lie number two, it will be worth it. And lie number three, it's personal, meaning it doesn't affect others. It's none of their business. Again, lie number one, it'll make me happy. Number two, it'll be worth it. Three, it's personal. Here's what we have to recognize in all the lies. They are true for a moment at least in part, but they never, ever stay true. It's the partial truth, the temporary truth that'll get us every time. Idols will make you happy. Sin does have pleasure, but it is very short-lived. Idols will be worth it for a moment. Idols will make you happy. They, and they will, again, they will be worth it but only for a second because then we have to pay more than we ever agreed to for them. And the third point, it is personal. Nobody does know for about one second. And then it starts to impact others negatively, negatively, even if they don't know. And often it negatively impacts those who are closest to us. Idols damage relationships. They damage our witness. They damage our joy and our peace and our confidence. I encourage you to discuss these three lies in your salt groups this week. Think on them, pray on them, search the scriptures. What do the scriptures say about the pleasures of sin, the nature of sin? What do they say about the cost of sin? What do they say about the collateral damage? Here's a vital application point for us. If you or I are struggling with a particular idol in our life right now, a specific addiction, a certain sin, a worldly pleasure or dependence that keeps defeating us, then we must put pen to paper 
and answer the lies. We must open the Word of God and document the truth. Identify the lies, identify the Scripture truths so that we can read them side by side against the lies when we wake up in the morning we go to bed, when we're at work, when we're alone, whenever we happen to be tempted especially. There's power to keeping the truth before our, our eyes and the power is in the Word. We know full well that some of our most vulnerable times are when we have forgotten the truth and believed a lie just for one minute. If we struggle with anger, then we need to put the truth in front of our eyes at that moment of temptation. Quote the scripture to yourself before you lash out at that family member. If we struggle with lust, then we better identify and reject the lies and stare at the truth. If we're hopeless, then we need to identify the idols of self-sufficiency and comfort and replace it with submission and a drawing near to God, the reality of carrying our cross and following Christ. We need Romans 8, 28 and 29. We need to know what the Bible says about God being in control, about Him being sovereign. We need honesty with other brothers and sisters in Christ so that they can come alongside us and point us to God and to truth and help lift our weary arms, etc., etc. These are the truths we need before our eyes. There is power in the truth. Here's another truth to recognize about idols. Idols never walk away on their own. It's we who have to change direction. The Thessalonian believers understood this. They lived this out. The verse says they turned. And that's not just a change in direction. It's a change in location as well. It's clearly implied and understood that they turned and ran. They turned and left. They turned and distanced themselves from their idols. Our problem is that we take the idol off the shelf and put it in the cabinet so that we can access it later. We keep it close at hand as though we have the strength and resolve to forever resist. It is so not true. What we should have done is taken the idol out back and put a sledgehammer to it and thrown it in the garbage can and burn the garbage can till there's no ashes left. You get the idea there. Paul says these exemplary Christians turned from their idols so much so that everyone was talking about it. That's how we know they turned and ran. Only a radical life change would spark that kind of widespread Christian grapevine action, if you know what I mean. We are called to turn from our idols, but that's not all. Point B, Paul says you turn from idols to serve a living and true God. Beware the folly of turning from idols and then just sitting there and hoping they will stay away. We don't turn from our idols, our sins, just to be rid of them. We turn from them to serve. This is powerful. History proves over and again, over again that believe, for believers that it is devastating. It is frustrating and discouraging to turn without serving. That's like turning the car on and not going anywhere. It's like packing your bags and staying home. And if Jen and Aaron are here, I apologize to them for that example. Uh, they they uh, missed their flight because of the snowstorm a couple weeks ago. Poor, poor family they had to come right back home. I'm not talking about them, of course. Paul says, turn and serve. When we think of idols, we think of worship worshiping false idols. But when we think of serving, we don't always think of worship. Let me ask this, is it possible to worship God but not serve Him? Or would you agree with me that the two are absolutely inseparable? If you worship something, you serve it. That's why you call it your God. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 58? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That verse isn't to pastors and missionaries. It is to all believers. We are to all abound in the work of the Lord. Our worship is measured, at least in part, by our service. If I am increasingly turning from the idols in my life, it will be evidenced by me increasingly serving God. 
How are you and I doing when it comes to serving God? Here's one place we'll find at least part of the answer. We'll know by who is talking about our service. Who's talking about how faithfully you and I serve God? All the churches in Greece were talking about this little band of believers in Thessalonica. Who's talking about you? Who's talking about me? Not that we do it to be noticed, of course. But there is a fundamental reality here. When a person serves God, when they truly serve God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, it tends to shock everyone around them. Would you agree with me on that point? People can't help but notice. It's too anti-cultural. It's too abnormal. It's too different. Who's talking about what a blessing you and I are in the Lord's work right here in our church family? But let's not box that question in. Who's talking about the difference we're making in our home, in our marriage, in our workplace, in our neighborhood? The work of the ministry is in all of these places. The opportunity to serve God and to serve others as unto the Lord is everywhere we are. Are we serving God enough to make a difference and to be noticed? Or would some never even know we were a Christian? I trust you hear my heart here in the text. Whatever you do, don't go from here and misquote me on this. I'm not saying to serve to be seen. I'm saying that the odds are very high that we will be seen if we serve God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But remember, sometimes that, that full throttle service to God will get you run right out of town. It did for Paul. It didn't go well for Jason and his household. But we've got to admit, people saw them serving God. People saw them turning from idols. We leave the results in God's hands, and we do it for His glory alone. But this matter of serving goes deeper in the verse here. Look at the golden wisdom Paul gives us. He says, we have to know who we're serving. It's not just God. It is the true and living God. That is distinctly in contrast to what? The idols, which were dead and false. Our idols are no different. The worldly things that capture our attention and our affections don't give life. They suck it out of us. They don't give truth. They're a lie. They're going to perish right along with everything else in this world. But our God is alive. And Christ is more than alive. He's alive again. And He's alive in us. That is a miracle that only God can do. We're alive in Christ, not only in this life, but the one to come. Christian friend, we worship and serve our God because He's alive. I fear we sometimes approach and serve Him as, as though He weren't, or, or as though we have at least forgotten. When we pray, we might as well be talking to a picture on the wall. Or when we read the Bible, it's, it's just a page in a book. Friend, God is alive. And if you know Him and He knows you, then He is alive in you. And the verse says, He is also true. You know what that tells us in contrast to idols? It tells us that we will never find a lie in Him. He will never deceive us. When we finish thinking about the lies of the idols that tempt us and fight against us in this life, well, let's not forget to think about the marvelous truth that God daily gives us. We need both. Paul continues in verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Turn, serve, wait. We must not make the devastating mistake of turning and serving without waiting for Jesus to come back. I fear that there are too many Christians 
And the temptation is alive and well in me too. Too many Christians serving God as though Christ were not coming back. They've largely forgotten that there is a deadline. There is, there is a reward. The labors and tribulations and service, etc. of this life do not last forever. You have to forgive me for my selfishness, but as I alluded to last week, one of the reasons I'm even preaching through 1 Thessalonians is because I know that I really need to grow in this matter of knowing how to wait for Christ's return, anticipating it, eagerly looking forward to it, knowing that the best is yet to come, and letting it impact, letting that truth impact my daily thoughts and service to God. The problem is that we get so caught up in today that we forget the Christ in tomorrow. Christians cannot afford that because there is too much grace and peace in the truth of Christ's return. Too much strength and too much calm assurance. I don't know a person here who couldn't use a little more of that or a lot more of that. We remind ourselves that this matter of waiting doesn't mean to be sitting around and doing nothing, of course. To think that, one would have to ignore everything we just read and studied in the first half of this sentence, not to mention the whole chapter. And of course, James taught this so well in James chapter 5 when he said, we need to be patient like a farmer. He works the fields because he knows the harvest is coming. He knows that there is a big reward. Without the reward, why plow? Like I said, there's a danger in Christians serving as though there's no reward or that the only reward is what people will think of me or the, the reward is in the act of kindness itself and, and the brief benefit that it brings to the other person. That, that, that is so not true. We turn, we serve because our Savior is coming back. The story is not over. The last chapter has not been written yet in our trials. The Son of the living and true God is going to leave the glories and splendor of heaven. Think about it again. That's an amazing testimony of the depth of love that Jesus Christ has for us. He's going to leave heaven again. And Paul reminds us that this, this Christ is the same person that God the Father raised from the dead. It's not just Christ. It's Christ who conquered death. It's Christ who conquered our greatest enemy. But we have to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is not just coming back. He's not just coming to take us home with Him. What does the verse say? He rescues us from the wrath to come. How much time do we have left? I know what you're thinking. Part two, brother. Part two, right? <laughs> We're going to cover this next time. Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. If you've never read or listened to it, this would be a good week to check out Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. American theologian, preacher of the early 1700s, highly influential in the great awakening of the time. He wrote this sermon, considered by some to be the greatest sermon ever given on American soil. I've posted links to it on the homepage of the community. Log in and you'll see them down there underneath the, or next to the videos. I couldn't remember if I've ever read the sermon before. And so since I couldn't, rem couldn't remember, I figured, well, then good enough, time to do it again. So I read it and listened to it this past week. Friends, pray before you listen to that sermon. You best prepare your heart. In Luke 12, verse 4 and 5, Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one, and it's capitalized, fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. When was the last time we heard a sermon on that text? Isaiah 66, verses 23 and 24. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, 
so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. No one wants to talk about those verses in Scripture, about those truths. Why? I suspect it's because they don't want to turn, serve, and wait. As Mark mentioned, uh, he, Nancy, I, and Graham are going to fly out tomorrow morning and go to the pastor's conference in Southern California. Please pray that God would do a mighty work in us and that he will then bring that work back home. I want to thank Clay Silek right now for preaching for me next Sunday. But then the following Sunday, we will devote our entire study time to that last phrase, that last glorious phrase, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so humbled at the wisdom and the truth of your word we marvel at the thought that was presented to us in this excellent Sunday school series. You are a communicating God. You wish to speak with us. And Lord, we know that you wish to speak with us because you want us to understand. You want there to be relationship. How amazing that you desire to commune with us. Lord, help us to turn from idols and to serve you faithfully and to know how to wait for the return of Christ. We thank you for these truths about the nature of the gospel message. It's not just a word, but those words are important because those words have power. God is in them, and they are fully convicting. Lord, so much truth for us to live by here. Thank you for the wealth of your word. We're reminded that it is not just the pages in the book. It's the wealth of you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.